we're in a series plowing through the grand narrative of the Bible, developing a biblical worldview. Hello and welcome. I'm Stephen Buckley and last time we spent just over two hours on the first week of history, the creation account and the seventh day of rest. Now before we move into the Garden of Eden, we should pause momentarily to address one of the most successful attacks on the foundations of the Christian faith in the West, the theory of evolution. The book of origins, the book of Genesis, perhaps more than any other informs our worldview. If we do not lay this protological foundation correctly, our whole framework of the gospel story is skewed. Believing the, the plain reading of the creation account, it's not a salvation issue as such but it is a biblical authority issue and if we are to take god at his word we're, we're required not to read into it our own culturally popular ideologies and theories his very character is at stake evolution is an all-encompassing worldview with lengthy accounts of origins and meaning of existence a philosophy whereby a creator and a sustainer of all is not essential now, given uh, that this philosophy is, is knitted throughout TV production, it's broadcast to our living rooms, it's aggressively taught in schools and universities, Christians can be persuaded to concede scriptural meaning, approving evolution as God's chosen method of creation, embracing a cocktail of, of a godless worldview and a biblical one often referred to as theistic evolution or the favored progressive creation. They've reinterpreted the Genesis record of uh, the six days of creation as, as evolutionary eons. They are committed to find a way to insert billions of years into scripture, wedging open a gap between uh, Genesis 1-1 and 1-2 that we uh, touched on uh, last time, um, all by changing the days into ages of evolution. Now it's beyond uh, the scope of this session to exhaustively travel through each and every argument, uh, but it's important to uh, briefly look at this worldview and determine if it fits with the biblical one. Evolution demands vast eons of time that the Bible does not afford. The day-age theory. The day-age theory promotes that the days of creation represent ages of time. Like English, the Hebrew word for day can refer to an undefined period of time. So how do we know when it means a regular 24-hour day in English? Well, if an old man telling the story of his youth said, in my day, I would fish for trout on a regular basis, you would know that, he, that he's meaning a period of years. But if that same man said, now I have one day left to live and in the morning I will likely die, you would know that he's speaking of regular days. The context, the usage determines meaning. As if the author of Genesis couldn't be clearer in the context of the passages, he defines the word day by qualifying the length of time by its context, by the word morning coupled with evening, plus the number followed by the word day. Evening, morning, number, day. And this is consistent with every other mention in the Hebrew scriptures where day, yom, appears with morning or evening, or, or modified by a number, speak of a, of a, of a literal 24-hour period. 
Uh, Victor P. Hamilton, a highly regarded Old Testament scholar, asserts, It needs to be affirmed that, that in the Hebrew Bible, the normal understanding of Yom is a day of the week. And he goes on to say that interpreting the Genesis days as, as metaphorical to suit a scientific consensus would be to override an understanding of a Hebrew word based on its contextual usage. Furthermore, one would have to take extreme liberty with the phrase, there is evening and there is morning, the X day. There is no doubt that the author of Genesis is being emphatic that these are ordinary days. Now, we've seen in the previous session that within the Ten Commandments, God gave the reason for creating in six days and resting on the seventh was to form the, the pattern of the universal week. And this explanation was given on tablets of stone written with the finger of God, it says in Exodus and Deuteronomy. It cannot be overstated that God, the pre-incarnate Jesus, inscribed in stone with his finger, for in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them, and he rested on the seventh day. Did God create the world over six million years and then rest for a million years and then expect us to work six days and rest one? (laughs) God holds the power to create in whichever way he chooses and he chose six regular days and rested on the seventh to to teach us to instruct us and prepare us in exodus we read about the encounter of moses before god on mount sinai the glory of the lord resided on mount sinai and the cloud covered it for six days on the seventh day he called to moses from within the cloud was it six days Or was it 6,000 or 6 million or 6 billion years? Did God call to Moses for a further million years? How many days did they walk around Jericho? How many days was Jonah in the whale? (laughs) According to Jesus, the same length of time that he was in the tomb. The Hebrew word for day is written 2,301 times in the Old Testament in single and, and plural forms. Why do we only ever question Genesis 1? Scripture is overwhelming in declaring a normal week of creation and rest. If you were to ask anybody unfamiliar with the Bible to read Genesis 1 and inquire how long that they thought the author was trying to communicate the time taken to create the universe, they would unquestionably answer a working week or six days. God is not the author of confusion. When secular scientists study the universe and they conclude ages of millions of years, they miss the fact that God created his universe mature. If Adam on day six of creation had been immediately presented to today's scientists, they would reasonably conclude that he was approximately 30 years old, ignorant of the knowledge that God had created him within a matter of hours. And it's the same with all of existence. He created it mature. So, Of course, scientists make calculations based on today's observations and conclude that it must have taken vast amounts of time for light to travel across space and for this or that to form. Of course they will. I understand why they come to those conclusions. They are missing the God variable. Let's say that God created this mug in one second on camera. There was nothing and one second later this mug was here. 
Other people would come in and they would say, well, no, this must have taken about eight hours with, with molding, this glazing, this hand painting, um, this, this firing in the oven. That must have taken the best part of a day. Except we would know that actually he created it in one second. Presuppositions determine much of our conclusions, which is why knowing that God created the world in six 24-hour days, resting on the seventh, is key to forming our biblical mind map. Now, one of the verses often quoted to plead for the day-age theory is that of Second Peter, that a single day is like a thousand years with the Lord. He's actually reflecting on the prayer of Moses in Psalm 90. It's stripped of its context because Peter continued, and a thousand years are like a single day, which cancels it out. We've previously mentioned that Peter is evidently speaking of God's perspective and patience, exhorting us to think from God's viewpoint rather than man's. He's revealing that the creation days are a prophetic calendar for the return of Jesus. Not that the creation days were a thousand years each, but that those regular creation days are prophetic of the 6,000 years of history with the seventh millennial rest to come. This is consistent with other parts of scripture where uh, days can be prophetic of years for example so the days of genesis 1 uh, they're not symbolic of undefined ages but regular days that set the pattern for our week and are prophetic of the seven millennia of history the bible does not describe a distant god who who just wound up a clock and let it run but a personal hands-on approach to his creation you knitted me together in my mother's womb, it says in Psalm 139. God so clothed the grass of the field in Matthew 6. In the same chapter, your heavenly father feeds the birds. He's an affectionate, hands-on God, not a, not a cold player of a pinball machine. The gap theory. The gap theory attempts to crowbar ages of time between Genesis 1-1 and 1-2. According to the theory, God used evolution as the method of creation over long ages before destroying it. And then over six days, the method of special creation to create man and similar creatures he just destroyed. Not only is this unbiblical and unscientific, but it's also nonsensical. Are we to believe the plain reading of Genesis? Are we to believe how Moses portrayed the Sabbath? Are we to believe what God wrote with his finger on stone? Do you believe Jesus when he said, I cast out demons by the finger of God, but then question what Jesus meant when he wrote with his finger on stone? It's no surprise that Jesus would declare, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. It's not a science issue, guys. It's a heart posture. Molecules to man evolution is utterly unbiblical. God created distinct kinds and sex from the beginning. When God repeats himself, he is making a point. And no less than 10 times is the word kind used to express the distinct characteristics between his special creations. Different kinds of sea creatures, kinds of plants, animal kinds, and mankind as one. Note that the Bible does not use the word species, which is a, a modern, narrower classification. These kinds would produce different varieties, but are limited to reproduce within the boundaries of their kind. 
Speaking of mankind, Jesus said, He who created them from the beginning made them male and female. The message is loud and clear. From the beginning, there were no interconnecting evolutionary links, amoeba, nor primordial soup, but distinct kinds made male and female with a capacity to bring forth according to their kinds. If God used an evolutionary process to kickstart life forms, then randomness determines purpose. Even if you say God was directing the process all the way, did God create a situation whereby billions of dead things were necessary before he got to the one that he chose for purpose? Or are you saying that each so-called step had, had their own purpose? You see how kind of weird and questionable it becomes. Your worldview turns out to be unreasonably complex, bordering undefinable. That God created distinct kinds means he created with intention and purpose of which he makes plain. The wording of Genesis 1 does not allow for evolution. God said, God said, God said, let the waters swarm, let the birds fly, let the earth bring forth, let us make man. And it was so, and it was so, and it was so. And God named, and God named, and God blessed, and God blessed. It's an immediate response. God announces, commands, fulfills, approves, names, blesses. The wording intentionally forbids inserting time. Did he announce that, that he was going to create something and then wait millions of years before doing it and then doesn't give it a name until millions of years later and then doesn't bless it until another million years or, and then approves it whenever he gets round to it? This is why I love Genesis 1. It exposes the foolishness of man. It was by the word of the Lord the heavens were made and by the breath of his mouth all their host it says in Psalm 33. He speaks and creates immediately. The narrator tells us the execution was complete, followed by God's approval of his creation. Evolution challenges the definition of God's words. God declared his original creation as good, while evolutionists picture evil. And throughout the creation process, God declares the status of his work in a surprisingly frank manner. On day one, we read, God saw that the light was good. On the third day, God saw that it was good. Again, in verse 12, God saw that it was good. On the fourth day, we read, and God saw that it was good. On the fifth day, God saw that it was good. On the sixth day, God saw that it was good. And after completing his creation, we read, and God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning the sixth day. In the beginning then, including up until sometime after creation, everything was very good. What else would we expect from a good God? Now, if you hold to theistic evolution, you are forced to believe that God saw all that he had made, millions and millions of bones and rotting flesh and dead animals, disease and cancer found in the fossil record, systematic suffering, continuous extinction of living things and mass bloodshed over millions and millions of years and declared it to be very good. God was incredibly careful in how he inspired the scriptures and the use of good on seven occasions in Genesis 1 is a perfect example. Good can be translated as beautiful, unstained, precious, 
Understanding the unstained goodness of creation before sin entered the world is critical in grasping the big picture. After all, if God is going to restore this planet to its original condition, he's going to restore it to a good one. The gospel of theistic evolution is this, the restoration of all things through the blood of Messiah back to the good old days of bloodshed, disease, chaos, extinction, and mass graves. From the beginning, far from chaos and bloodshed depicted by evolution, creation and its order are declared very good. Evolution heralds death as the hero. Theistic evolution is the process of billions of deaths to bring about God's final state of humans and animals today. Try to imagine, as Henry Morris puts it, billions of years of history of purposeless variation, accidental changes, evolutionary blind alleys, numerous misfits and extinctions, a cruel struggle for existence with preservation of the strong and extermination of the weak, of natural disasters of all kinds, rampant disease, disorder and decay, and above all, with death. Does this sound like the God of loving kindness who said, the last enemy to be eliminated is death? I couldn't think of a more evil, brutal, illogical, time-wasting, life-defying process. God even said, I receive no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Death is the enemy, not the hero. Contrast the notion of survival of the fittest to the Sermon on the Mount. Would God use a process that punishes the poor in spirit, the mourning, the meek, the merciful, the pure in heart, the peacemakers, because they were not strong or aggressive enough? He's a God of order, not chaos, self-sacrificing, not barbarity, grace and mercy, not callousness. On this alone, the philosophy of evolution must be repented of. Evolution charges God with the direct responsibility for suffering and death. Before you give birth to your beautiful baby, you prepare a lovely room for them, right? You don't trash it and say, good luck. Yet this is what theistic evolution teaches. No, he created a beautiful home of the earth in perfect conditions, and we have trashed it. Paul is clear writing to the Romans. Just as sin came into the world through one man, Adam, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Death reigned from Adam, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. He goes on to say, the wages of sin is death. Again, when writing to the Corinthians, he says, for since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also came through a man. For just as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. It was sin that brought death into the world. Death did not exist until after Adam sinned. Death is the consequence of sin, hence we require a saviour. Jesus had to die on the cross because Adam had brought sin and death 
into the world. Paul connects Jesus's death and resurrection to the historical events of Genesis 1 to 3. The Bible says there was, there was no death in the beginning. There is now death, but there will be no more death again. Evolution says death has always been around and always will be. Not only does the idea of death before death before sin contradict the Bible, it makes God the direct author of evil. In addition, we understand from scriptures that with, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness, which implies violence and death. From a theistic evolutionary viewpoint, violence and death have, have always been part of God's bloodbath process for, for millions of years. How can that make sense? And many attempts to exit that impossible labyrinth have failed. Theistic evolution undermines the atonement of Jesus. Evolution contradicts the order of creation events. As best as one may try, you simply cannot harmonize the Bible with billions of years of evolution. Historian of geology and theologian Dr. Terry Mortison lists the obvious contradictory timing of events between the Bible and evolution. Evolution has the sun before the earth, Genesis the earth before the sun. Evolution has dry land before the sea, Genesis the sea before dry land. Evolution has the atmosphere before the sea, Genesis the sea before the atmosphere. Evolution the sun before light on earth, Genesis light on earth before the sun. Evolution has the stars before the earth, Genesis the earth before the stars. And there are many more. Creation is the antithesis of evolution. Evolution attempts to force the creation account into a mythical posture. While scholars debate over the definition of a myth, we can safely rule out any and all broad and narrow labels that the creation account is a myth. Paul warns us against myths in 1 Timothy 1. Peter contrasted his eyewitness testimony with devised myths in 2 Peter 1. Paul later said that there'll come a time when people will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths in 2 Timothy 4. Paul speaks about Adam as a real person through whom every nation of mankind descended in Acts 17. Some Christians just refuse to even believe that Adam and Eve were real people, which is bizarre when Jesus and Paul spoke of them as real people. And the family genealogy from Adam to Jesus is included in Genesis 5, Genesis 11, Luke 3, even Jude verse 14. Are you suggesting that the Bible describes Jesus descending from fictional characters? <laughs> Efforts to uh, undermine the, con the continuity of, of the genealogies have failed also. Paul says, So also it is written, the first man Adam became a living person, the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. Jesus, as we know, is referred to as the last Adam, who lived the life that Adam didn't, who died the death that he didn't deserve to pay the price for the first Adam's sin. Now, if the first Adam isn't real, why is the last Adam real? Why would God base his gospel on mythical figures and confuse us with poetic imagery of a creation account that didn't really happen? Genesis is historical narrative. The gospel of Jesus is true because the history that provides the context of the cross is true. 
the Christian faith is reliant upon the historicity of these events. The Genesis account then is not myth or, or a fictional story, but an accurate eyewitness historical account beautifully written. And the same is true of the global flood, the events at Babel, the life of Abraham, the Exodus, the cross, the second coming, and everything in between. Referring to the stories within Genesis 1-11, to such as the serpent who, who speaks, Hamilton says, It is irresponsible and incorrect to speak of these stories as myths. Evolution is more philosophic than scientific. The urge to believe evolution because it's fact is unfounded. In risk of straying from the Bible into the sphere of science, I wish to encourage listeners to grapple with this theory because, because of the great impact that it's made on the gospel story. Evolution proclaims that, that man is merely the product of, of random mutations plus natural selection. The crux of the matter is that all living things require genetic information and if per evolution one kind of animal is to change into another kind of animal or more poignantly for an amoeba to eventually become a human, the, the organism must gain new information to do so. Now if you only remember two facts, remember these. Firstly, there is no known observable process by which new genetic information can be added to an organism's genetic code. Let me say that again. Number one, there is no known observable process by which new genetic information can be added to an organism's genetic code. Secondly, never has it been observed that life can come from non-life. Both points on their own, on their own merit, destroy the theory of evolution. Evolution does not make scientific sense. It is not observational science, something that you can observe and test and study and repeat, but rather historical science that paints a fairy tale for adults. Uh, Professor uh, Dr. John Stanford, who has published over 80 scientific papers and he's been granted over 30 patents in the field of genetics, dispels uh, the theory of evolution in his excellent book, Genetic Entropy. I highly recommend that one. And he says, it must be understood that scientists have a very sensitive and extensive network for detecting information-creating mutations, and most geneticists are diligently keeping their eyes open for them all the time. This has been true for about a hundred years, yet I am still not convinced there is a single crystal clear example of a known mutation which unambiguously created information. Earlier, he says, nearly all health policies are aimed at reducing or minimizing mutation. Most personal health regimes are aimed at reducing mutations to reduce risk of cancer and other degenerative diseases. How can anyone see mutation as good? It's beyond the scope of this video to address the science behind the theory, yet here are a selection of nails in the coffin to contemplate in your own time. Natural selection selects. It doesn't create. It can only select from the information that is already there. Life has been shown to be irreducibly complex. 
A major problem for evolutionists who believe rock layers were laid down gradually over vast eons of time is the lack of any signs of erosion in the geologic column and the massive sections of strata that have been tightly folded without fracture or evidence of the sediments being heated. A global flood, as described in the Bible, however, can account for this. Where are all the missing links? The fossil record gives no clue that any basic type of animal has ever changed into another basic type of animal, for no undisputed chain of in-between forms has ever been discovered. The law of biogenesis, the well-established law of biology that living things only come from living things. The Big Bang model has a, a light travel time problem known as the horizon problem. The timescaling conditions for the formation and cooling of granites are totally consistent with a 6,000-7,000 year old Earth and a global cataclysmic flood of around 4,500 years ago. Evolution cannot account for the variety of languages. Scientists in an eight-year study known as the RATE project revealed the fatal flaws within the methods of radiometric dating and, and in fact they, they detailed evidence for a young Earth. How do you rationalise evolution if we are merely a collection of chemical reactions? Science presupposes that the universe is logical and orderly and that it obeys mathematical laws that are consistent over time and space. Well, how could these laws evolve? Are they still evolving? Right? Could, could a big explosion really create complexity and, and, and create beauty and awe and humour and artistry and musicality? Frauds to promote this theory include Piltdown Man, a Nebraska Man, Heckle's Embryos, the Archaeoraptor, the Peppered Moths, the Cardiff Giant, some of which are still taught as true. Macroevolution, changing from one kind into, a, into another, uh, which is never observed, is sold on the back of the cleverly named microevolution, variance within a kind which is observed but has nothing to do with mutations. According to evolution, the moon has existed for over 4 billion years, yet the tidal and gravitational forces and the rates of recession mean the moon would be touching the earth 1.5 billion years ago. Evolutionary models fail to address how the Earth's magnetic field could have lasted over such a long period of time considering its rapid rate of decay. In recent years there have been many findings of wondrously preserved biological materials in supposedly ancient rock layers and fossils. One such discovery that has left evolutionists scrambling is a fossilised Tyrannosaurus rex femur with flexible connective tissue, branching blood vessels and even intact cells. The claim that humans have inhabited the earth for tens of thousands of years do not compute considering a conservative estimate of the population doubling every 150 years. Simple mass reveals human existence of a few thousand uh, which is in line with the Bible. You know, when you consider evolution as, as just a reasonable layman, right? how did the organs evolve? Like, when did the lungs evolve? Like what evolved first? The heart, the blood, or the blood vessels? 
Without blood, the heart has nothing to pump. Without vessels, the heart has nothing to carry the blood. Without the heart, the blood remains stagnant in the vessels. An organ is, is, is useless until it is completely functioning and rightly connected to the rest of the body. They must come about precisely at the same time. Otherwise, the creature dies. It just it doesn't make sense. We understand from experience or just, just general knowledge about the perils of inbreeding. Why? Because there's no new genetic information, which is why there was controversy around the, the popular televised dog show a few years back. The Independent wrote, Not only do many pedigrees have significant shorter life expectancies, inbreeding also increases the likelihood that recessive genes will be passed down to puppies along with a host of serious congenital defects, including heart disease, epilepsy, hyperthyroidism, cataracts, allergies, and hip dysplasia, a disease that can lead to crippling lameness and arthritis. You can try to play God and breed dogs in whichever way, but there are built-in limitations. Dogs always remain dogs, cats remain cats. If you attempt to breed dogs into kind of weird new creatures, guess what? You always end up with unhealthy dogs because you'll be decreasing genetic information, not gaining new information. We know this stuff. And you know, personally, having experience in, in writing website code, I find it bizarre that, that misspellings and selective copying would improve a person's DNA. Any code must be carefully written and managed, else it will not work. The consensus in science, it is a dominant one, but many scientists do not believe in evolutionism, including those without faith, such as the magnificent Dr. David Belinsky. Uh, many of these scientists hold firm to the Bible's teaching that the universe is approximately 6,000 years old. It's not a battle of evidence. Everyone has the same evidence. It's a battle of worldviews that determine our conclusions. And there's immense pressure of scientists to toe the evolution line. It's difficult, it's increasingly difficult for scientists um, who, do, who do not conform to be published in secular journals. Research professor Junyan Chen said this, in China, we can criticize Darwin, but not the government. In America, you can criticize the government, but not Darwin. There is no conflict between science and the Bible. Science is the study of the structure and behavior of God's physical and natural creation through observation and experiment. Uh, some studies are good and true, others are false. God has inspired many great scientific minds. Psalm uh, 111 says, Great are the works of the Lord, studied by all who delight in them. In the early years of my faith, I was challenged to question the theory of evolution, and I, I was astonished to find, as Stanford puts it, the emperor has no clothes. The fruit of evolution is rotten. The philosophy underpinning evolution is damaging to both church and to society. If you teach children that rather being made in the image of God, they are merely higher animals in a dog-eat-dog -dog world where the fittest survive, morality is relative, ultimately their existence is meaningless, and that violence and bloodshed is God's preferred method of creation, you will not be surprised to nurture disobedient children. And more so, if we, if we teach our children to undermine the creation account as plainly written, they will continue to undermine the rest of Scripture. 
The animal rights movement springs from evolutionary thinking. Now, it goes without saying that we, we care for the welfare of animals, but the secular campaign is a different beast. It begins to blur the divine distinctions between man and animal. A product of matter plus time plus chance means no supreme authority, or at the least, it, it invokes a different god. Evolution says that the men who write today have brighter minds than the biblical authors. It leads to scholarly arrogance. The history of this philosophy is in abundance of evil fruit. Dr. Henry Morris explains that evolutionary philosophy is the intellectual basis of, of all anti-theistic systems. It served Hitler as the rationale for Nazism and Marx as a supposed scientific basis for communism. With the, the conception of, of superior and inferior peoples, it provides a foundation for racism and warfare. It punishes the weak and rejoices in, in exterminating the disabled. Jesus said every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. The rotten fruit of the evolutionary philosophy is testament to its evil roots. The theory of evolution is born out of pride. In Charles Darwin's case, one could connect his philosophy with the grief of losing his wife and some of his children. With an incorrect view of suffering and the sovereignty of God, he sought an alternative explanation to the biblical creator and would popularise his findings of this new perspective. Faith in Darwinianism is built on man thinking that we are the most intelligent, wise, fittest beings that have ever lived. The human state is now referred to as Homo sapiens sapiens, Latin for wise, wise man. God laughs. Paul's words ring true. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. The Bible says the opposite, that Adam and Eve were given perfectly rich genes and thousands of years later, copy after copy, because of the curse, there are errors causing damaging mutations that play havoc with life. We know that inbreeding is dangerous, which is why it's outlawed in many countries. The further upstream you go, the statistically better genetics you will have away from the incestuous shallow end of the gene pool. Now, while some knowledge will have been lost in Noah's day, ancient archaeology and studies reveal incredibly sophisticated, innovative and intelligent people of the past flying in the face of, of this kind of half-ape caveman often depicted. The evolutionary worldview is in stark contrast to the biblical worldview. First, let us look at the naturalistic worldview. Now, we remember that a worldview consists of a canvas of existence or a field of play. The players of existence, the laws or the rules of existence, the history of existence, the protology, the goal or the purpose of existence, missiology, alongside the, the doctrine of salvation, soteriology, and, and the future of existence, eschatology. Naturalism frames the canvas of existence as decisively materialistic. Its players too are made up of natural building blocks void of uh, spirit or identifying soul. The human players self-describe as homo sapiens sapiens, wise wise man. Naturalistic protology begins the story with the Big Bang. Its resulting laws are purely natural with no room for true morality or ultimate authority. Survival underlines the goal of the players, which is determined by relative fitness. Naturalistic soteriology is defined by progress. 
death of the weak players through natural selection is, is, is deemed necessary, even profitable. Death is viewed as the cleanser of nature. Naturalistic eschatology has no specific destination in mind. Only unending death cycles producing progressive, fitter players. Now, in contrast, the Judeo-Christian worldview pictures a canvas made up of the heavens and the earth. Uh, both natural building blocks uh, and the spiritual are cohesive. Uh, biblical protology paints a canvas and its players, so to speak, are created purpose purposely, uh, orderly, and without blemish. Sin and chaos, uh, suffering and death have no place within its origins. As we've seen, the purpose of creation is to glorify the creator. Uh, the failure to do so, uh, the introduction of sin, which brought about suffering and death, point to the soteriology that is found in Jesus the Christ, the creator incarnate. Salvation has been secured by the substitutionary atonement for sin on the cross by this Messiah. His suffering in this age before the glory in the age to come characterizes the narrative. Biblical eschatology now points to the restoration of all things to its original beauty and order described as a new heavens and a new earth. Messiah who once suffered will be glorified as king over all the earth, who is ready to judge the living and the dead. This messianic eschatological age to come will be inaugurated by the day of the Lord. Theistic evolution is a compromise of the two opposing worldviews. It borrows the protology of the naturalistic worldview, relegating the creation account to a degree of mythical status. It retains the spiritual aspect, but it's bolted onto billions of years of bloody history. The players, including mankind, have been developed by God through a process of trial and error. Billions of prototypes finally resulted in an animal worthy of God separating as a new kind, man, and installing a spirit. Histories of existence are merged together uh, with varying theories and chronologies and time gaps, uh, but generally viewing the life of Abraham as the definite start of true history. Biblical history before this is frequently watered down to stories to learn lessons from. The cross, now out of context, is held dear, but the eschatological hope warped. And we've said the restoration of all things through, through a theistic evolutionary lens is the good old, good old days of widespread disease and violence and extinction and bloodshed. Now, no, no doubt many kind of within this broad and varied group of Christians would object to the above synopsis, but when you start to nail this strand of view, it's left wanting and dripping, not in the blood of Christ, but of pre-man. The bloated protology of theistic evolution results in a modification of orthodox soteriology and eschatology. If you get the start of the story wrong, you get the ending wrong and the middle confused. In fact, if you tell me your protology, I will tell you your eschatology to a degree. In contradiction to the biblical narrative, evolution tells a story of chaos to order, digressive to progressive, unfit to fit, and this context drastically alters one's soteriology and missiology for that matter. 
This thinking teaches that you're set for your best life now. The life of Christianity will get better and better, that you're on a road of, of one progressive kind of unending story of bad to good. It means that you're susceptible to buy into secular schemes and international programs that appear virtuous and progressive and kind, but the spirit of which is working against God and his program. In deep contrast, Harrigan uh, summarizes that the messianic suffering before eschatological glory defines the essential storyline of the Judeo-Christian worldview. The biblical worldview begins good, it becomes bad through sin, but proclaims a future good, or simply good to bad to good. We are to, to, to expect and even embrace the suffering in the present in light of the hope of future glory. The evolutionary framework forces the hope of the gospel to be replaced by a supernatural spiritual kingdom. Why can't the kingdom be progressively installed too, they ask. We can start building the kingdom now, they pronounce. Believing in evolutionary processes over God's word warps all other doctrines, questions of identity, purpose, ethics, morality, universal locale, uh, depravity, what went wrong, the fall, God's sovereignty, and the solution is dissimilar. It plays with definitions of words too, as if to complete the contradiction, nature is often personified as mother. Evolutionaries see themselves as the progressing community. This mentality persuades them to believe they're the ones in the know, the fittest, the most intelligent, right? That they will make the world a better place. It's a breeding ground for egotism and condescension, hence the propensity of mocking traits towards those who believe the trad traditional view of protology, shelving them as kind of crass literalists and backward and bigoted. And this enlightened position comfortably adopts an emphasis on, on man's achievement. This worldview's regulatory system is not calibrated biblically, resulting in an acceptance of things that we should reject and a rejection of things that we should receive. For example, if you believe the Creator used the process of evolution, you're more likely to accept Marxism, theories of population control, abortion, and so forth. A fittest survive mentality plays out in our vocations. It means you reject simple chronologies of redemptive history. It means the creation week cannot be a prophetic timeline of history. You're more likely then to reject the millennial reign of Christ. This morphed worldview does not make sense. Ask these questions. Did angels evolve? <laughs> or did God spend billions of years trying to perfect his creatures and then puff, he created the angels instantaneously? If angels, why not humans? Or, or did angels hang around for, for billions of years, waiting to deliver messages to humans? Why would God create animals such as dinosaur, dinosaurs to live millions of years before man? Right? Is this just a pointless exercise? Did the Son of God wait billions of years before he became incarnate? The, the theistic evolutionary gospel story is strikingly different. It preaches different too. Compare these basic redemptive timelines, very different narratives, very different redemptive histories. Evolution is refuted by many scholars. Because a six literal day creation is mocked, I'm going to read some quotes from scholars, some of which are ranked as some of the best in the world on their commentaries on Genesis. Arnold Frutenbaum, this phraseology, evening and morning, simply does not allow for anything but a 24-hour period. 
Gordon Wenham, there can be little doubt that here, day has its basic sense of a 24-hour period. Victor Hamilton, whoever wrote Genesis 1, believed he was talking about literal days. John Sailhammer, that week, as far as we can gather from the text itself, was a normal week of six 24-hour days and the seventh day in which God rested. Alan Ross, it seems inescapable that Genesis presents the creation in six days. Gerard von Rad, the seven days are unquestionably to be understood as actual days and as a unique, unrepeatable lapse of time in the world. H.D. Lupul, there ought to be no need of refuting the idea that yom means period. Reputable dictionaries like Bull, BDB or KW know nothing of this notion. Hermann Gunkel, naturally the days are days and nothing else. He says the application of the days of creation to 1,000 year periods or the like is thus a very capricious corruption from entirely allogenous circles of thought. Wayne Grudem, known for his systematic theology, I am now more firmly convinced than ever that it is impossible to believe consistently in both the truthfulness of the Bible and Darwinian evolution. We have to choose one or the other. Again, we ask, what is the author's intent? Judd Davis says, nearly all world-class Hebraists assume that the writer of Genesis intended normal days and the text as history. Until the 1800s, all commentators believed the plain reading of the Bible, that the, the universe was thousands, not billions of years old. All the translations too, including the paraphrases such as the Aramaic Targums, use the plain meaning of days. Did God make it so that nobody throughout history could understand what he meant until the last couple of centuries? It's a matter of scriptural authority. The readers and the hearers of this text, they were not scholars or modern scientists, they were former slaves, common people who must have understood it as normal days, who, who were commanded to teach their children. Children were to understand it. Were they teaching it wrong? Like what kind of God gives a text to a people that hides the true meaning and then commands them to teach their children what it means? <laughs> right? The significance of the text to be developed later is one thing, but the initial plain meaning is another. Evolution is inconsistent with God's ways. For those contending that God's method of creation is inconsequential, I hope by now you can see that not only is it biblically unsound, sociologically harmful, but his very character is at stake. Paul said that in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. More coarsely put then, evolutionism is a demonic belief system that is riddled with lies, struggling to remove God from his throne and should be renounced from the pulpit. It must be personally and corporately repented of. You did not evolve. You are an image bearer of God, fearfully and wonderfully made. Now, regrettably, millions of dollars are being spent by Christian organizations who are teaching Genesis as myth and promoting evolution as truth. His character is not up for grabs, but the way that you view his word is. It is not a matter of what God could have done, but rather a matter of what God said he did. It is what God said that matters. This is a battle between God's word and man's word. Here the Lord speak through the pen of Isaiah. 
My hands have made both heaven and earth. They and everything in them are mine. I, the Lord, have spoken. I will bless those who have humble and contrite hearts, who tremble at my word. Retaining the fear of the Lord, we are to tremble at his word. As Jesus retorts, if you do not believe what Moses wrote, how will you believe my words? And that wraps up the session for today. Next time, and I'm excited about this, we are heading into Genesis 2 and the Garden of Eden. God bless and Maranatha.